Well, good morning, y'all. Today we want to continue in our series, The Story of the Bible, as we've been um, slowly walking through it. Uh, And the goal is really to to help everybody to be able to build um, what I call a systematic theology. So we can look at some of the key passages of the Bible that the foundation of the Christian faith is built on so that at the end we can have a clear understanding about what it is that we believe and to know that we've built our faith with our own two hands so that we can own it. And so right now we still are at the very, very beginning of the book of Genesis, but I promise you as of today we're going to really pick it up. Uh, Just um, a couple of quick things before we get into the passage today. The Old Testament, as we're getting into the Old Testament, the Old Testament was um, written over the span of about a thousand years, and it's comprised of 39 books in the Old Testament. And the first section is what we call the Pentateuch, or the books of law. These are the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And it's commonly to um, have been, these books are commonly to be believed to have been written by Moses with a little help from his friend uh, Joshua. And it's in these five books that we read about things like the creation of the world and Cain killing his brother Abel and Adam and, or, uh, Abraham and Isaac and Moses and the Ten Commandments. So it's a lot of kind of rich history of the beginning. But what we find in these books is really what I would describe as the establishment of mankind and the development of ancient civilization from the very beginning. And so today... We're still in Genesis. We're um, going to look at chapters 6 through 9 because I think this is an important passage that we need to talk about. And really, it's a story that most of us have heard ever since we were little kids. Does everybody know Noah and the Ark? Is everybody kind of familiar with the whole Noah and the Ark thing? Um, You know, Noah and the Ark, you know, Noah brought all the animals into the Ark. He brought them all in. How? Two by two. Yep. And, you know, we think of this as like this kind of cute little kid's story. And, you know, we have Noah in the Ark wallpaper on our babies' walls and Noah in the Ark toys. Um, But the truth of the matter is that this is one of the most horrific stories in the entire Bible. And the church tends to just gloss over this story and look at the happy stuff Um, and try to keep it as a kid's story because the reality is it's just so difficult to comprehend. So if you came to church this morning and you were looking for a little rah-rah, shish-kumba, like pick me up, this is not your Sunday, I'm sorry. Uh, This is about as close to a hellfire and brimstone message as you'll ever hear me preach, um, but I'll keep it real. Uh, So here we go, Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw how great is the wickedness of the human race, how it had become on the earth. And every inclination of every thought of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. God said, I'm going to bring a flood onto the earth and destroy all life under the heavens and every creature that has breath and life in it 
everything on earth will perish. It appears that God's patience for the evil of mankind has worn thin. And if you listen closely, you can hear the rumblings of thunder out in the distance because there is a bad storm about to hit. So uh, I was 10 years old before my parents ever took me to the theater to see my first movie. And um, as a pastor's kid, my first movie was not some great cinematic thriller or some cute Disney movie. You know, I've shared with you about the background of my dad and archaeology and the Bible. So my first movie was a documentary in search of Noah's Ark. That was that was it. And the whole thing was, you know, all these archaeologists speaking about, you know, finding the remains and thinking they found the, you know, uh, Noah's Ark. But um, it actually helped to make this story like really believable to me and really made it real. So it was was a you know, it ended up being a cool event, but it is kind of funny. Um, but as I grew older and the more skeptical I became, and as I went through my faith crisis stuff, you know, this was probably the most difficult story in the Bible for me to accept because it's all so implausible from beginning to end. So let's just set aside a few things. Let's set aside the fact that Noah was 600 years old, all right? We're just going to put that over the side. Or that two of every kind of animal on the entire earth fit into a boat. Or that there was a flood big enough to consume the entire world. All that crazy stuff we're going to put aside, and we're just going to focus in on this one aspect that probably gets me the most. And that is While God saves Noah and his family, he wipes everything else out on the face of the earth. Everything that is living and breathing in order to wipe the slate clean. And the Bible said that he did it because he regretted ever making mankind in the first place. It's pretty harsh. I mean, the tough part of the story, I think, for me is how can the God that I worship, the God who I believe saved my rear end from the pit of hell, the God who I know is to be a God of love and, and grace and forgiveness, how can that God do something as seemingly cruel as this? This is what I want to work through with you this morning because I think that this is a critical aspect as we build our systematic theology that we are not naive about the character of God, who he is, and what he's about. So let's go back to verse 6 again where it says, the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So based on this, I mean, this is one of the hard things that I have is that is God actually shocked by how evil man became? I mean, 
Do you think that God was naive enough to believe that when he created the first man and the first woman that somehow nobody was going to partake of that tree and that fruit and that somehow we were all going to live perfectly and brilliantly in the Garden of Eden from the beginning of time until the end of time? I mean, how is it that God, like, I mean, is this some type of a human experiment that went wrong or something? I don't know. But what we see is from the fall of Adam and Eve to Cain killing his brother Abel to on and on and on, the, the reality is that evil just built in mankind and it snowballed. And as a result, God's heart, it says, became deeply troubled. That passage can also be translated to read that God's heart had been grieved. Now, that's an important translation point for me because that's a love word, right? It feels different. And so when somebody hurts you deeply that you really love, what do we do? We tend to lash out, right? We tend to lash out and we do things and we say things that look a lot like anger, but in reality, it's that pain that we're experiencing coming out in a seemingly angry way. And that is a picture of what I believe is God in this moment. He loved man deeply. But they, we, hurt the heart of God deeply. We talked last week about how the Imago Dei and how we're created in the image of God And as such, we share characteristics with God himself, and not the least of which is experiencing hurt and pain from the people that we love the most. I mean, you don't grieve in your heart about somebody unless you care about them, right? Nobody, nobody can hurt me like the people that I love the most. And there have been plenty of times where I have been seemingly angry about something when the truth is my heart has been hurt. I mean, there's been times when I've gotten so mad at my kids that I just grabbed them and hugged them so tight because if I didn't hug them, I would kill them, right? And I didn't love them any less in this moment. They just at times broke my heart. And I think there's just times where we flat out break the heart of God. The Old Testament reveals that we have a God who can get angry. And he can get vengeful. And a God who wants justice for the things that are do that people are doing wrong. I mean, it says God will not let the guilty go unpunished. And so God said to Noah, look, I, I'm going to destroy this. I'm tired of people. I'm going to destroy the whole earth. And he said, but I have found, you have found favor in my eyes. And so I'm going to allow you, I'm going to save you and your family. And I want you to make this ark. And he tells them the particular type of wood, and we go through this scripture, and it gives the dimensions, and exactly like, literally, you could build this ark based on everything that's described in the scriptures. And, um, and by the way, the, 
the dimensions that Noah was given to build this ark was like one and a half times a football field. So we're not talking about some small canoe or something. This is a big boat, especially for that particular period of time. And so then God says, look, you know, after you build this boat, I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under heavens. Every creature that has breath and life in it, everything on earth will die. I mean, I, I wonder how that impacted Noah to know that his God was going to wipe everybody out, that a good God who was saving him and his family was about to annihilate all of the rest of mankind. I mean, this is really tough stuff, but you can't sugarcoat. So it goes on in chapter 7, verse 1, it says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Now, the Hebrew phrase there is, and I'll just remind you the reason why I keep referring back to like the Hebrew and the Old Testament or the Greek and the New, because that was what the original translation was written in, so it helps to bring more color about things. So the Hebrew phrase there where God said to Noah to go into the ark is not actually a commandment like it sounds. It's actually a Hebrew word for an invitation that he's inviting him into a process to build this ark and to enter into this ark. And so that's important because it shows us that Noah had a choice. It was by invitation. God was inviting him, but Noah had a choice, and he wasn't forced. And so at any time, Noah could have said, hey, I don't want to leave my friends, or I don't want to leave my home, or I don't trust you, God, that this thing is, is really true, like most of the other people who were making fun of Noah, who was you know, building a stinking ark in his front yard or whatever. Like, they didn't believe. He could have not believed. He could have said, I don't want to be stuck in some ark with a bunch of smelly animals forever. And, you know, but instead, we find that Noah accepts the invitation of God, which is really important. In the same way that God gave Noah a choice to follow him, here's what is important to understand that happens throughout the entire Bible. True love can only exist if there is free will. God does not want you to love him because you have to. God does not want you to love him because you're afraid of hell or because you feel guilty. God desires that we love him because we have a choice and we have made a decision to love him. There is a heaven and there is a hell. And the fact of the matter is that we are free to choose and accept that invitation to follow him or not. And a lot of us just make excuses or we just push that off and we say, you know what, I'm too busy. I don't have time to like fit this into my, this religion thing into my life right now. I don't have time to, to deal with that right now. And what we're doing is we're pushing that out. And even a non-decision is a decision. We have made a choice. And so Noah and his family all enter the ark. All the animals are on. His family's on. Everything's ready to go. And they sit and they wait for the rain. But nothing happens. 
Like they spend the night and the next day on the ark, nothing. Next day, nothing. I mean, the skies are blue, the sun's shining, nothing. Absolutely nothing is happening. And I'm sure by now, Mrs. Noah is going to Mr. Noah going, Hey, uh, honey, are you sure you heard God right? Are you sure he didn't tell you to build a park or to follow him through the dark? Are you sure it was ark? You know how bad your hearing has been for the last 500 years. But then in Genesis chapter 7, verse 10, it says, After seven days, the flood waters came on the earth and the flood began. Here's my question Why did God wait seven days to start flooding the world? I mean, it makes a point of saying it took seven days before God began to flood the world. Why? The ark is built, the family's safe, the animals are in, everybody's ready to go. Why? I can only give you my opinion here. And that is knowing the very little bit that I know about God. I think he wanted to give everybody one more chance. I think he had a hard time bringing himself to wiping out mankind. And so what we read is that for seven days, the door to the ark was standing wide open. Anybody could have come on. Anybody could have made the choice to get on board and save themselves. God could have been thinking, one more day. If I just wait one more day, then maybe they'll come to their senses and believe and follow me. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you. And he does not want that even one would perish, but that every single one of us would come to repentance. This is the same thing as the story where Jesus talks about the shepherd who had 100 sheep and 99 were fine, but one went out and got lost and the shepherd went out and left the 99 to go get that one because he didn't even want one sheep to be lost. God wants that not one of us would perish. He wants that every single one of us would have eternal life. But the hard truth of the Bible is that he's given us a choice. And it's in our hands. And after seven days, nobody showed up. It was just Noah and his family. And Genesis chapter 7, verse 16, is one of the most sobering verses in the entire Bible because it says, in that moment, God shut shut the door. Shut the door on the rest of humanity. This is really important at which we're starting to build the systematic theology on because there's a whole lot of us that when we think of the character of God, we think of him as the God of love and the God of grace. And we 
don't tend to think of him as the God of judgment because it's not fun. We tend to fool ourselves into believing that, you know what, God is good. God is good all the time, so in the end, it's going to be all good, and everybody's going to end up being in heaven anyway. That's not what the Bible teaches. Here's the truth. The God of the Old Testament is the same God who is the God of the New Testament. And the God of the Old Testament, who shut the door, is the same God of the New Testament, who sent his only son into the world to die on a cross, so that the door would remain open forever. But you got to walk in. You have to make that choice. Jesus became the reconciliation between the God of the Old and the God of of the new, and instead of a flood wiping the slate clean by wiping out everyone to start over, the cross of Christ has wiped sin out and cleaned the slate through forgiveness so that we would not have to die again, so that we can start over fresh and experience the grace of God. When Jesus comes on the scene a few thousand years later and he reflects back on the story of Noah, Jesus himself describes the wickedness of Noah's day and gives us a great example of the imagery of the point of the story because he says, For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and having a good time up until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. And that is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be out in a field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be working with a hand mill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. Do you ever think, yeah, you know, one day I'll turn my life around. One day I'm going to get it together. One day I'm going to get serious about this God thing. I just want to finish up my career or wait until I'm a, a little older. And we keep talking about that one day, that someday of our lives. And so the idea of the second coming of Jesus, the idea of that there will be a judgment day, the idea really of even my own death, We get in denial about that, and we keep pushing it off, thinking, you know, that is this kind of far, really far thing out, and I wonder if it will ever really happen, and we get in denial about the reality of that situation. But I don't know about you, in the last two years, I mean, the number of people that I know that I've lost who are in their 40s and 50s and early 60s, I mean, they had no idea that that time was coming. The reality is that God has given us all an invitation. He's given us all a choice. But one day, and we don't know when that is for us, one day that door will shut 
and God's invitation will be over. Because the story goes on and says outside of the ark, the storm that no one thought was really coming, that they all made fun of Noah about, the rain started coming. And countless number of people were lost forever. That ark was an invitation to everyone. And everyone made their choice to reject it. And now the door was shut and it was too late. The Bible teaches that there will be coming a day of judgment that has been declared and it won't come in the form of a flood. That there will be a day when we will have to stand before God and we will have to give an account for the things that we've done in our life. And on that day, there is only one thing that stands between us and the God of the Old Testament who is the judge. And that's Jesus. And the Bible also teaches that when we're standing there and we've accepted that invitation that Jesus stands up and defends us and says, no, Father, this one has accepted my invitation. I've cleaned the slate. I've given them forgiveness. I've given them grace. Let them in to receive eternal life. For it is by grace we have been saved through faith in Jesus. The same God that provided an ark for Noah and his family as a means of escape from his own judgment is the same God who allowed his only son to be killed on a cross so that we could escape the judgment of hell. And the only difference between me and any other person on the outside of the ark is that I've accepted that invitation. And the question is, have you? you keep putting that off or you keep thinking about that in the someday of your life rather than the today part we have a God who loves us beyond belief and he wants that not even one of us would perish if you have not accepted that invitation just keeping it real I would not waste one more minute of your life waiting on the someday I would just sit down and I would say that I believe in Jesus. I believe in his death. I accept his forgiveness. I repent. I'm going to turn my life over to God. I'm going to do everything different. And I'm going to live the rest of my days for him. Because the Bible promises that one day that invitation will be over. And that door will shut.